Solidarity number 531 slash workers' liberty number 70, part 3, page 13. Marx's Telescope by Martin Thomas. The working class is the revolutionary class. It is the great digger of capitalism and the architect of socialism. Everyone who's ever heard of Karl Marx knows that those were central ideas. And Marx himself, in old age, gave an eager suggestion from a young co-thinker about producing an edition of his collected works, the wry response, they would first have to be written. The Marx, Marx wrote a lot, but only a fraction of what he planned to write, and a fraction that's selected by haphazard circumstances as well as deliberation. Thus, the Communist Manifesto opens with the sentence, the history of all hitherto existing societies is a history of class struggle. But the one chapter where Marx set out to explain systematically what he meant by class, chapter 52 of Capital, volume 3, is an unfinished fragment of five paragraphs. Likewise, with, revolution, with the revolutionary role of the working class, Dardier runs through all of his writings, yet nowhere does he clear a space to set down his arguments in the textbook from step by step. In textbook Marxism, therefore, it can be all too easy to divide the perspective into two separate propositions. One, capitalism will break down because of economic contradictions. And two, someone, probably the working class, will take over and concentrate the means of production into a single hand. The someone in this scheme needs no prior preparation except to be around and available as a cohesive force when capitalism collapses. Stalin could present itself as a Marxist by hammering at Proposition 1, and quietly, under the cover of the noisy banging, amend Propositions 2 into someone in the name of the working class will take over. In recovering the real gist of Marx's thought, evaluating its relevance to capital today, and working out a sound, long-term perspective in the 21st century, one of Marx's major but least known writings is central. This is the Grundrisse, Marx's rough draft of 1857-1858. The Grundrisse, some 779 pages in English translation, comprises seven notebooks written by Marx in the winter of 1857 and 1858 in a dash, so he hoped, to get his economics finished. In September 1850, Marx had broken with the majority of the Communist League exiles in London with these words, quoting, We tell the workers, if you want to change conditions and make yourselves capable of government, you have to undergo 15, 20 or 50 years of civil war. Now they are told by the majority, we must come to power immediately or we might as well go to sleep. The word proletariat has been reduced to a mere phrase like the word people was by the Democrats. To make this phrase a reality, one would have to declare the entire petty bourgeois to be proletarians. In other words, de facto represent the petty bourgeoisie and not the proletariat. In place of actual revolutionary development, one would have to adopt revolutionary phrase. End quote. In other words... Only by lengthy development within capitalist society, by civil war, Marx evidently means social war rather than necessarily a military battle, does the working class become the revolutionary working class. To adopt the revolutionary phrase, that is, to pretend that the working, working class is always immediately revolutionary, is to fall into politics of pretenses. You end up recommending whatever petty bourgeois oppositional movements are immediately to hand, and glossing them, over, glossing them up as proletarian rather than cleaving to the long-term interests of the working class. Around the same time, Marx wrote, quoting, While this general propensity lasts, enabling the productive forces of bourgeois society to develop to the full extent possible within the bourgeois system, there can be no question of a real revolution. Such revolution is only possible at a time when two factors come into conflict, the modern productive forces and the bourgeois forms of production. A new revolution is only possible as a result of a new crisis, but it will come just as surely is the crisis itself, end quote. In 1857, crisis erupted. Marx feverishly set to work to pull together his long-languishing economic studies. I am working like mad all night and every day collect, calculating my economic studies so that, uh, so that I, at least, get the outlines clear before the deluge. He wrote to Engels on the 8th of December, 1857. By February 1858, he was writing... To Ferdinand Lasalle, saying, I would like to tell you how, how things stand with my work in economics. For the last few months, I've been working on a final version, he said. Final it wasn't. But by June 
1858 marks the completed a manuscript which covered, in outline, much of the terrain to be covered by the three volumes of capital and the three volumes of the theories of surplus value and, what interests us most here, a great deal besides. The writings spurred on by the idea that revolution was the more or less mechanical product of crisis, the Marx must have soon realised that the crisis would not evoke revolution. In fact, the Grundrisse was a big step in Marx's path from the idea that revolution is the product of crisis towards his later view that a revolution is brewed up by the whole course of capitalist development itself, rather than primarily the mechanical blockages and reversals of the development, in other words, crises. More than any of his other works, in the Grundrisse, Marx sometimes lays aside the, the microscope which he analyses current economic and political intricacies and takes up a telescope to look at the very long-time trends of the capitalist development. What does that telescope see as the traits of fully developed capitalist society? In the first place, the commodification of everything and extensive privatisation of public utilities. Since Engels and Andy During, the manuscript of which Marx read and approved, Marxists have seen the concentration and centralisation of capital as moving logically to a highest to, to a highest stage, of the withering of the capitalist competition and the grouping of production in the hands of states or larger private capitalist enterprises, more or less monopolising their national markets. And up to the 1970s, things were pretty much that way. Now they are obviously different. Capital continues to con concentrate and centralise, as Marx put in Chapter 25 of Capital. But Marx developed that argument within a great national society, within a given national society, that is. That is more or less how it went until nearly 100 years after his death. To this day, most multinational corporations still have a definite homeland, but on a world scale, their growth comes from the intensification of capitalist production and a cutback in a direct competition, direct economic enterprise of individual states. In the Grundrisse, Marx makes more prescient than perhaps he knew foreshadowed this development, saying, All general conditions of production, such as roads, canals, and so on, presuppose in order to be undertaken by capital instead of the government, which represents the community as such, the highest development of the production founded in capital. The separation of public works from the state and their migration into the domain of the works undertaken by capital itself indicates their degree to which the real community has constituted itself in the form of capital. The highest development of capital exists when the general conditions of the process of social production are not paid out of the deductions from social revenue, the state's taxes, where revenue and not capital appears to be the labour fund, and where the worker, although he is a free wage worker like any other, nevertheless stands economically in a different relation, but rather out of capital as capital. This shows the degree to which capital has subjugated all conditions of social production to itself on one side, and on the other side, hence, the extent which social reproduction, reproductive wealth has been capitalised, and all needs are satisfied through the exchange form, as well to the, as the extent to which socially posited needs of the individual, in other words, those which he consumes and feels not a single individual in society, but communally with others, whose mode of consumption is social and by the nature of the thing are likewise not only consumed, but also produced through exchange, individual exchange. The invading society with capitalist forms is thus not, as Engels suggested, the planned production of monopolistic associations of private producers, or directly the capitalist state in national frameworks. Uh, that was all one long quote from pages 531 and 532, uh, except for that very last part about uh, Engels, that last phrase there. Uh, carrying on with the article. Uh, what are the subversive elements in the advanced capitalist society viewed through Marx's telescope? Capitalism so advanced rarely has women and men as the direct agents of production. Instead, the workers tend to supervise and maintain a process of production driven by science. Uh, quoting, the great historic quality of capital is to create the surplus value, super superfluous labour from the standpoint of mere use value, Mere subsistence and its historical destiny, which he called uh, Bestimung, is fulfilled as soon as on one side there has been a development of needs that surplus labour above and beyond necessity has itself become a general need arising out of injured individual needs themselves. And on the other side, when the severe discipline of capital, acting on succeeding generations, that is, Geschelter, has developed general in industriousness as the general 
property of the new species, the Gestalt. And finally, with the development of the productive powers of capital, which capital incessantly whips onward with its unlimited mania for wealth, and on the sole conditions in which this mania can be realised, have flourished at a stage where the possession and preservation of general wealth require a lesser labour of time of society as a whole, and where the labouring society relates scientifically to the process of progressive reproduction. Its reproduction is constantly in greater abundance. Hence, where labour is a human is a human being, does what a thing could do has ceased. Natural necessity in its direct form has disappeared, because historically created need has taken the place of a natural one. That is why capital is productive. In other words, an essential relation for development of social productive forces. End quote from page 325. Capitalist wealth depends on the capitalist squeezing more labour out of the worker than the equivalent of what he has paid for the labour power on the theft of alien labour. As science and technology advance, it becomes plain to all that this squeezing of wealth for a few from the misery of the many can be replaced by wealth for all by the achievement of collective control over the general intellect. Aspiration to this collective control is built into development which capital spurs on with, within the working class itself. For capital cannot develop its productive powers, cannot sell the new products which which new powers make possible without constantly requiring greater general knowledge and expanding the horizon of needs and wants among the workers, and at the same time as it curtails that knowledge and frustrates those who wa- those wants and needs. Marx des- describes to us the working class which becomes a revolutionary because capital's ceaseless striving towards the general form of wealth drive labour beyond the, li- the, the limits of its natural paltriness, the natria and thus creates the material element developments of the rich individuality that's a quote from page 325 which cannot but collide with, with the barriers of capital in the first text in which he identified the working class as, agent, as the agency of socialist revolution his introduction of critiques Hegel philosophy, of Hegel's philosophy of rights 1844 marks it like this quoting when then is the positive possibility of German emancipation? Answer, in the formulation of a class within, with radical chains, a class of civil society which is not a, gen, a class of civil society, and a state which is the dissolution of all estates, a sphere which has a universal character by its universal suffering and claims no particular right, because no particular wrong, but wrong generally, is perpetuated against it, which can invoke no historical but only human title which does not stand in any one-sided antithesis to the consequences, but in all-round antithesis to the premises of German statehood. A sphere, finally, which cannot emancipate itself without emancipating itself from all other spheres of society, and thereby emancipating all other spheres of society, which, in a word, is the complete loss of man, and hence can win itself over through the complete re-winning of man. The dissolution of society as a particular estate is the proletariat. It's like a tongue twist to that. End quote. The working class is able to create a new, more hum- human society because it has been dehumanised and brutalised. It's the complete loss of man. There is nothing but dialectical flourish to explain the postulated transition. Marx is German here. Die uh, Volleverlaster Menschen. And Mensch means human being or person rather than man, as distinct from woman. However, Marx did often go with the then almost universal use for man as a term for human beings. The exposition takes us no further than the hopeful but puzzled comments by Engels in a letter to Marx of October 1844. As it is, the workers have already reached the final stage of the old civilization a few years ago, and the rapid increase of crime, robbery, murder is their way of protesting against the old social organization. At night, the streets are very safe, are very unsafe rather. The bourgeoisie is beaten, stabbed and robbed. And if the proletarians here develop according to the same laws as in England, they will soon realise that the way of protesting as individuals and with violence against the social order is useless. And they will only protest through communism, in their general capacity as human beings. If only one could show these fellows the way. But that's impossible. End quote. In the Communist Manifesto, 
1848, Marx had moved forward. Building on the prefigurations of human solidarity, which has been seen as, this, as the association with or organised French Socialist Workers' Party in 1844 in Paris, and on the understanding of the importance of the trade union struggles that developed develop from studying English experiences and, his, and in his polemic against Proudhon in 1846. He adduced his positive properties of the working class itself, its self-organisation and economic struggles, its building the links of using modern communications, its learning about political action, thanks to bourgeoisie, have compelled it to, compelled to draw it into the action, rather than simply postulating it as a negation of capitalist society. He also distinguishes between the working class as a revolutionary force and those who are the most brutalised and dehumanised by capitalism, the Lumpen proletariat, who he considers more likely to be reactionary. Even in the Communist Manifesto, though, Marx has not emancipated himself from the old iron law of wages, the idea, that, the idea commonplace among socialists at the time, that capitalism necessarily limited wages to physical subsistence levels. And so there are still large elements of this theory... <coughs> in the working class is the epitome of brutalisation and dehumanisation. It is only the most simple, most monstrous and easily acquired knack that is required of him. Hence, the cost of production of a workman is restricted almost entirely to the means of subsistence that he requires for maintenance and for the propagation of his white race. But the price of a commodity and therefore also of labour is equal to its cost of production. In proportion, therefore, as the repulsiveness of work increases, the wage decreases." End quote. In the Grundrisse, and later, in chapter 15 of Capital, Marx argues differently. Developed capitalist production precisely because of its drive to extract and realise surplus value has no choice but to drive labour beyond the lim limits of its natural paltriness to replace labour in which a human does, not, does what a thing could do to create a workforce of varied and wide potentialities and also create new aspirations of aspirations and needs among the working class. A precondition of production based on capital is therefore this is a quote, a precondition of production based on capital is therefore the production of constantly widening spheres of circulation, whether the sphere itself is directly expanded or whether more points within it are created as points of production. While circulating while circulation appears expanded by its production itself, the tendency to create the world market is directly given into the concept of capital itself. The production of relative surplus value, in other words, production of surplus value based on the increase in development of productive forces, requires the production of new consumption, creation of new needs while propagating existing ones in a wide circle, production of new needs and discovery of creation of new use values. Thus the, cultiva cultiva thus the cultivation of all the qualities of, humans, of social human beings, production of the same in a form as rich as possible in needs, because rich in qualities and relations. Production of this being the most total and universal possible social product for, and in order to take gratification in a many-sided way, it must be also be capable of many pleasures, uh, which he calls the genusfahagig, hence cultured to a high degree, is likewise the condition of production founded on capital. Continuing the quote, just as production founded on capital creates universal industriousness on one side, so does it create, on the other side, a system of general exploitation of the natural and human qualities. While there appears nothing higher in itself, nothing legitimate for itself, outside the circle of social production and exchange. Hence, the great civilising influence of capital, its production of a stage of society in comparison to which all earlier ones appear as mere local developments of humanities and nature, nature idolatry. Capital drives beyond national barriers and prejudices, as much as beyond nature worship, as well as traditional, confined, complacent, encrusted satisfactions of present needs and reproductions of old ways of life, is destructive towards all of this and constantly revolutionises it. That's a quote from page 409 to 410. Too, other, too often among Marxists, this, often, this thought has been dismissed as relevant only to when the bourgeoisie was a progressive class. We are told that since sometime around the First World War, capitalism has been in the epoch of decay, and so all it does is reactionary. At best, this argument is a stretching to breaking point and beyond of an assessment by Marxists like Lenin and Trotsky of actual capitalist decay in the period after World War I. 
They worked to have that decay replaced by workers' power. They were defeated. It was replaced by self-restructuring of capital at workers' expense, which eventually created the terms for a new capitalist expansion. At worst, it becomes sheer superstition and romanticisation of a bourgeois of days gone by. So the financial aristocracy which ruled France since the time of Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, which Marx called the lumpen proletariat reborn at the pinnacle of bourgeois society, could work a civilising influence on capital, or the gang of shady characters which succeeded in rule between 1851 and 1870, or the Grand Grids and the Bounderbees of the mid-19th century Britain, those who, as Marx put it, had enslaved the workers to no more impressive purpose than to transform a few vulgar and half-educated upstarts into eminent cotton spinners, extensive sausage makers, and influential blacking dealers. They were not so bad. They were progressive bourgeois, but the bourgeois of today, who were in their own interests and in their own way have set up the internet and mass higher education. They, in contrast, have provided no elements on which the working class can seize as levers for emancipation. Marx refers startlingly but emphatically to the civilising influence of capital on the working class. Read thoroughly, it is clear that Marx is very far from the socialist professors who Rosa Luxemburg derided as claiming the wearing of neckties, the use of visiting cards and the riding of bicycles by proletarians as notable instances of the participation of cultural progress. Whatever the arguments about Hegel, it is clear that Marx's telescope sees development as as proceeding through contradictions. Marx is clear that the positive aspects of capitalist development are inextricably intertwined with, really the same thing as, the negative aspects. They are the same process looked at from a different angle. And they are positive, not because they make capitalism not so bad after all, but they create within capitalism an immense potential for abolishing and going beyond capitalism. It is precisely the drive to exploit, to extract more and more surplus value, and then to realise it by selling the products, that drives civilising influences. And, but, and the civilising influence becomes manifest through the workers' fight back against the drive to extract surplus labour and the organisation and self-education built on it. The semblance of exchange, quoting, between workers and capital vanishes in the course of, in the course, that's the process, of the mode of production found on capital. The course itself and its repetition posit what is the case in itself, namely that the worker receives as wages from the capitalist what is only part of his own labour. This then also enters into the consciousness of the workers as well as of the capitalists. Page 597. This development through contradiction, for Marx, breeds a drive by the working class to press on through the contradictions and to go beyond the seizing of the collective control of production. Marx did not attempt to carry this argument through the full detail in Capital. Upon condensation of it, however, there, in passages, little notices and summaries of Capital, but nonetheless central to the book's argument about the revolutionary role of the working class, and specifically of the working class in the most advanced capitalist industry. Quoting, Modern industrial industry never looks upon and treats the existing form of a process as final. The technical basis of that industry is therefore revolutionary, while all early modes of production were essentially conservative. It is continually causing change not only in the technical basis of production, but also in the functions of the labourer and the social combinations of the labour process. At the same time, it is thereby revolutionising masses of capital and of work people from one branch of production to another. But if modern industry, by its very nature, therefore necessitates variation of labour, fluency of function, universal liberty, mobility of the labourer, on, on the other hand, in its capitalistic form, universal... It reproduces the old division of labour which ossified particularizations. This absolute contradiction between the technical necessities of modern industry and the social character inherent in its its capitalistic form dispels all fixity and security in the situation of the labourer. Variation of work at present imposes itself in the manner of an overpowering natural law and with all blindly destructive action of the natural law that meets resistance at all points. But modern industry, on the other hand, through its catastrophe, imposes the necessity of recognising as a fundamental law of production, variation of work, consequently fitness of the labour for varied work, consequently the greatest possible development of his varied aptitudes. 
By maturing the material conditions and the combination on a social scale of the process of production, it matures the contradictions and antagonisms of the capitalist form of production, and thereby provides, along with elements for the formation of a new society, the forces for exploding the old one. Chapter 15, Section 9. As a footnote, to give individual illustration to, this, to his argument about the subversive potential of advanced industry's inherent fluidity, Marx cites the testimony of a French worker who spent some time in California, quoting, I never could have believed that I was capable of working at various occupations I was employed on in California. I was firmly convinced that I was fit for nothing but letterpress printing. Once in the midst of this world of adventures, who change their occupation as often they do their shirt, egad, I did this as others. As mining did not turn out as ruminative enough, I left it for the town, where in succession every time I became a typographer, a slater, a plumber, and so on. In consequence of thus finding out that I am fit to do any sort of work, I feel less of a mollusk and more of a man. There is nothing in the Grundrisse, that's the end quote, there is nothing in the Grundrisse about trade union struggles, organisation, utilisation of political arenas of bourgeois democracy, in other words, specific forms through which Marx saw workers collectively becoming less mollusks and more humans, and indeed more just the dialectical obverse of capital, and than just the poverty accompanying capitalist wealth. For that we need to read the poverty philosophy, wages, the poverty philosophy, wages, price and profit, and Marx's writings for the first international. But there are two things in the Grundrisse that are very important for our times, which is not in those better-known articles and pamphlets. Contrary to what became the assumption, reasonable on the face of it, of most Marxists in the era after Marx's death, Marxists suggest that every building up of the labour movement until our final victory must only be provisional and temporary subject to, the, to be undermined by the constant whirl of capitalist restructuring. The movement will need to be built again with a changed, more developed, more individualistic working class. Marx takes the emergence of labour in general as distinct from the segregation of the population into traditional trades and callings, as characteristic of developed capitalist society and as existing empirically, and it's, as it's most developed in the modern form and existence in the bourgeois society, the United States. This is not labour in general established by the fact that everyone does much the same sort of labour. On the contrary, indifference towards any specific kind of labour presupposes a very developed totality of real kinds of labour, of which no single one is no longer predominant, said Marx on page 104. As capital develops, therefore, labour becomes every more differentiated and even more, ever more fluid. Every form of labour organisation built up on fixed communities and trades is, in time, dissolved. The movement has to rebuild itself on the social basis of an even richer and more diverse totality of the real kinds of labour. The response is never automatic. The process is never linear. According to Marx in the Grundrisse, capital's constant process of expanding human potentialities and simultaneously making human society more empty will always generate more than one response. The revolutionary communist response is to push forward, on through that world and out to the other side, the emancipation. But Marx insists the reactionary anti-capitalist response will be there too, always, to the blessed end. Uh, quoting, universally developed individuals whose social relations as their own communal, uh, communal that is, Gemeinschaftlich relation, are hence also subordinated to their own communal control, are no product of nature but of history. The degree of, and universality of the development of wealth where this individuality becomes possible supposes production on the basis of exchange values as by condition, whose universality produces not only alienation of the individual from himself, but others, and also the universality and the comprehensiveness of his relations, relations and capacities. Continuing the quote, the degree in the universe, universality of the development of wealth, where the individuality becomes possible, supposes production on the basis of exchange values as a prior condition, whose universality produces not only the alienation of the individual from himself and from others, but also the universality of the comprehensiveness of relationship and capacities. In earlier stages of development, the single individual seems to be developed more fully because he has not yet worked out his relationships to the fullness or erected them as independent social powers and relations opposed, opposite to himself. Continuing, Marx says, it is ridiculous to yearn for a return to that original fullness and it is believed that its complete emptiness of history has come to a standstill. 
The bourgeois viewpoint has never advanced beyond the antithesis between itself and the romantic viewpoint, and therefore the later will accompany its legitimate antithesis up to be blessed, up to its blessed end. Uh, from page 162, now in German, is written, Und darum wird jene als berechtigte Gegants sie bis ein erstelliges End begleiten. Marx holds that the old view, which appears very lofty, is actually much more limited. That the breakup of pre-capitalist communal relationships is in fact a precondition of emancipation. Quoting, the reproduction of presupposed relations of the individual to his commune, together with specific objective existence predetermined for the individual, of his relations both to the conditions of labourer and to his co-workers, fellow tribesmen and so on, are the foundation of development, which is therefore from the outset restricted. Great developments can take place here and within specific, a specific sphere. The individuals may appear great, but there can be no conception here of a free and fully development either of the individual or of society since such development stands in contradiction on the original relation. Do we never find an antiquity and inquiry into which the form of the landed property, and so on, is the most productive, creates the greatest wealth? Wealth does not appear as the main aim, sorry, as the aim of production. And though Cato may well investigate which manner of cultivating the field brings the greatest rewards, and Brutus may even lend out his money at the best interest rates, the question is always which mode of property creates the best citizens, Wealth appears at the end as is itself among a few commercial peoples. Monopolists of the carrying trade who live in the pores of the ancient world like the Jews of medieval society. Continuing, thus the old view in which the human beings appear as the aim of production, regardless of its limited national religious political character, seems to be very lofty when contrasted to the modern world, where production appears as the aim of mankind and wealth as the aim of production. In fact, however, when the limited bourgeois form is stripped away, what is wealth other than the universality of individual needs, capacities, pleasures, productive forces and so on, created through universal exchange? The full development of human mastery over the forces of nature, those of so-called nature, as well as of humanity's own nature, the absolute working out of his creative potentialities with no presupposition other than the previous historic development which makes the totality of development, in other words, the development of all human powers as such, the end in itself, not as measured by a predetermined yardstick, where he does not reproduce himself in one, specific, in one specificity, but produces his totality, strives not to remain something he has become, but he is an absolute movement of becoming. In bourgeois economics, and in the epochs of production to which it corresponds, this complete working out of the human form content of working out of the human content appears as complete emptying out. The universal objectification is total alienation, and the tearing down of all limited one-sided aims of the human end in itself to an entirely external end. This is a very childish world of antiquity. It appears on one side as loftier. That quote is from page eight hundred. Sorry. 487 to 488. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels stated their definition of what was specific to their socialist or communist politics by denouncing reactionary socialism. Their denunciation of those reactionary anti-capitalists was more absolute than their damning of the bourgeoisie itself. Marx and Engels set their aim as the communistic abolition of buying and selling of the bourgeois conditions of production and of the bourgeoisie itself. And the way towards that? Ruthless class struggle by the workers against the bourgeoisie. But it also credited the bourgeoisie with installing massive forces of production, opening out communications, creating world literature in place of old narrow-mindedness, supplying the proletariat with its own elements of political and general education in the battles of, the bourge battles of bourgeois democracy, and by promoting the defection of the section of the bourgeois intellectuals to the side of the working class, supplying the proletariat with fresh elements of enlightenment and progress. For the reactionary socialists, feudal socialists, Christian socialists, petty bourgeois socialists, corporate guilds for manufacture, patriarchal relations in agriculture, the true socialism of sickly sentiment, they saw no 
such other side of the story. In the Communist Manifesto, however, those species of reactionary socialism are depicted as social and political remnants about to disappear. Marx and Engels were vehemently against what they saw as tendencies in the early German workers' movement to, to dally with the idea of socialistic measures to be achieved in alliance with the landlord class or the state bureaucracy against the bourgeoisie. But in their later writings, on the whole, the idea of the two-front fight against capital and, the, and against rea reactionary capitalist forces tends to fade away. Something like the old idea can be found in such writings as the pioneer Russian Marxist George Plakhanov's Our Differences, where he warns that if anti-capitalist revolution through coup d'etat by the populists, the dominant radical force in Russia at the time, were possible, it would lead to a, monster, to a political monster similar to the ancient Chinese or Peruvian empires. In other words, to renewal of Tsarist despotism with, with a communist lining. On the whole, however, the idea faded in in the Marxism of the era before World War One, the labour movements were getting stronger and moving towards more so modern socialist ideas. Aside from what could be reasonably dismissed as freakish episodes like the proto-fascist agitation of General uh, Boulanger in France in 1887-1889, the bourgeois society moved slowly and unmistakably towards more bourgeois democracy. No one imagined such things as fascism and Stalinism. Actually, all that was alone. Belongi was not a freak, but a prefiguration of politics that would dominate much of the 20th century. Reactionary attempts to counterpose an imaginary social fullness to the way capital inexorably creates human emptiness in bourgeois society. The reactionary anti-capitalist response does indeed accompany bourgeois society to the blessed end. Contrary to the crude interpretations of Marx, and in line with Marx's own predictions, in theories of surplus value, the middle class, among sections of whom the reactionary anti-capitalist response can find its first natural base, through from there it can spread. Though from there it can spread, and has sometimes spread to large working class audiences, remains large even in most advanced capitalism. The reactionary anti-capitalist response can be modernised. In the Grundrisse, Marx dissected such a modernised response in the writings of American economist Henry Carey, contrasting him with the French writer Friedrich Bastiat. Bastiat was a neoliberal before his time. His response to the French socialists was that all the defects they complained about in French society were simply due to the capital not being fully enough developed in France. He said, The task is to free bourgeois society from the fetters which the state imposes on it. You want to multiply those fetters. First, work out the bourgeois relations in their pure form, pure form and then we may talk Late again, later. End quote. Marx, of course, had no time for Bastia, and reckoned that, as against Bastia, Carey was rich in, so to speak, bona fide research in economic science. But Carey had the characteristic reactionary anti-capitalist trait of counterposing an idealised version of supposedly more harmonious early development to the stresses and contradictions of contemporary capitalism. Carey was by no means an absolute anti-capitalist, nor, in fact, are most reactionary anti-capitalists. Paradoxically, among the reactionary anti-capitalists, the most reactionary are the most anti-capitalist. Those who are the most absolute in their anti-capitalism, if the artificial harmonious ideal which they counterpose to the capitalist world of today is thoroughly non-capitalist, then it has to presuppose the crushing invisibility of that characteristic product of capitalist society, the working class. There are plenty of milder reactionary anti-capitalists. Kerry was Abraham Lincoln's chief economic advisor. He argued that capitalist development could be harmonious in the USA, if only it shut out the disturbing influence of more developed English capital, with saying, with Kerry the harmony of the bourgeois relations of production ends with the most complete disharmony of those relations in the grandest terrain where they appear, the world market, and in the grandest development as the relations of producing nations, all the relationships which appear harmonious to him within specific national boundaries, or in addition, in the abstract form of general relations of bourgeois society, for example, con concentration of capital, division of labour, wage labour and so on, appear disharmonious to him, where they appeal in the most developed form in the world market, as the internal relations which reduce English domination of the world market, and which, as destructive influences, are the consequences of this domination. Continuing the quotation, if patriarchal 
if patriarchal gives way to industrial production within a country, this is harmonious, and the production of dissolution which accompanies this development is conceived in its positive aspects alone. But it becomes disharmonious when large-scale English industry dissolves the patriarchal or petty bourgeois or other lower stages of production in foreigner countries. The concentration of capital within a country and a dissolving effect on concentration present nothing but a positive sides to him. But the monopoly of concentrated English capital and its dissolving effect on similar national capitals of other countries is disharmonious. What Carey has not grasped, continuing the quote, is that the world market disharmonies are merely the ultimate adequate expressions of the disharmonies which have become fixed as abstract relations with the economic categories or which have the local existence on the smallest scale. No wonder, then, that he in turn forgets that the positive content of these processes dissolution when it comes to their full appearance the world market. Hence, where the economic relations confront him in the truth, in other words, universal reality, his principled optimism turns into a denunciatory, irritated pessimism. End quote. Referring to the Maverick English writer David Urquhart, who was a conspiracy theorist, seeing the intervention of Cyrus Russia as responsible for the world's evil, every evil, Marx wrote, What Russia is, politically, for Urquhart, England is, economically, for Carey. End quote. And so today, the USA is, politically and economically, for the Yankophobe left. Stalinism was the 20th century dominant form of reaction anti-capitalism, and the ones that set the terms for today's Yankophobe left. Today, many leftists, whose minds are dominated by the leftovers of Stalinism, though they sincerely reckon themselves anti-Stalinist, have their politics shaped by a desire to see in political Islam a filler for the revolutionary f- phrase they adopt in place of actual revolutionary development, or in a simpler form of reactionary anti-capitalism. They lapse into looking for liberated spaces and counterpowers in little communities, as if these little communities could prevail against what Marx identifies as the real community in bourgeois society namely capital. One way or another, though, we'll have to fight reactionary anti-capitalism to the blessed end. The Grundrisse steers us away from the increasingly desperate, crude Marxist idea that revolutionary working-class consciousness can come only from economic dissatisfaction consequent upon the economic crisis, but at least, in return, is pretty certain to come. Pavlov dog fashion, in response to that crisis. It points us instead to the task of constantly rebuilding and re-educating the labour movement within the process of capitalist development. It orients us to fight on two fronts against capital and against reactionary anti-capitalism. It also raises at least two big questions requiring new thought by Marxists in the light of today's conditions. First, consumerism. Marx is unambiguous about seeing capitalist consumerism as a constructive force, widening workers' horizons, expanding their needs. Can that still be true today? Isn't the desire for the new computer games console, the four-wheel drive, the monster fridge freezer on the contrary, a Stultifying factor. Isn't there a natural limit? Research by economists, tricky by the very nature of the subject but still impressive in the accumulation of similar results from diverse investigations, suggests that people are happier with more possessions only up to a certain point. Above quite a low level, people are made unhappy by inequality more than the low absolute level of income. So, for sure, someone living in Britain today on average wage from 1950s would be unhappy, because relatively poor. And it does not follow that the most potent but the most modern gadgets are the latest or the least human value. Plenty of people might prefer to do without the, that relatively old invention, the car, rather than, say, a computer or a mobile phone. But somewhere about the level reached by averagely well-off workers in the better-off countries between the 1950s and the 1970s, there is a cut-off. Up to that point, more stuff pretty much uniformly makes people happier. After that, not. In fact, there doesn't have to be a limit of some sort for the Marxist perspective of communism of general abundance to be possible. If, when everyone has all the basics, people are still trying to elbow each other into the gutter to get shiny newer stuff and needs to be policed either by the markets or, probably more harmfully, by Gendarme on the BMQ, BMWQ, then we may be able to reach somewhat, create a somewhat more humane and equal society. But we can never reach anything like what Marx foresaw as communism. In any case, nature imposes limits. If everyone in the world wants to, wanted to live in the style of the middle class in California, they could not. The drain on and to the damage to the resources on the planet would be unsustainable. In that situation, doesn't capitalism, capitalist consumerism become a retrogressive factor, a factor making the working class less and not more subversive? There is a force to these arguments, 
but they can be misled to the left into a hopeless dead end, indeed another variant of reactionary anti-capitalism. A polemical edge has to be directed against the hypertrophy of capitalist advertising and the relentless search for the easy quick buck in capitalist cultural production. Not against workers who like MTV or take too many cheap flights. A relatively harmless but comic example of the snares in an article from the 1986 by Ernst Mandel attempting to answer a critique who's a critic who said that the Marxist vision was impossible because however preposterous, people would always want more stuff. Mandel had to suggest that they were there that there were some consumer goods which people would really not mind doing without. Casting around, for example, he picks on the video cassette recorder, then an expensive new luxury. Might it not be preferable to forego the Betamax or the VCR and to work 10 hours fewer a week with much less stress? If the satisfaction of all primary needs were not in, endangered by such reduction, uh, this is from the New Left Review, uh, Series 1, Issue, Volume 159, uh, September to October 1986. Now, almost all working-class people in the prosperous countries have not VCRs, but more f advanced technologies, DVD players, Netflix and so on, of the same sort. In Kabul under the Taliban in the 1990s, one of the things that people would risk terrible reprisals for was to gather in cellars and watch videotapes of the film Titanic on VCRs and TVs carefully hidden from the religious police. It would not go down well to tell the working class, even in poorer countries, that communism will be good, but Netflix and DVD players will be unavailable. A bigger example is the whole history of the 20th century housing. Shuffle off much of the blame, though we can, onto capitalist governments like the British Tories of the 1950s and 1960s, who implemented a program on the cheap, with profits of the building contractors mainly in mind, the template for mass worker housing in the 20th century was set, and calamitously so, by thinkers of the left. No, they believed, workers were not consumerist. They would not want suburban villas like the middle class. They would want sparingly, des sparely de designed, functional, compulsorily communal and supposedly economical housing in a huge block of flats. The debacle of this vision had enabled writers of the right, Tom Wolfe in From Bar House to Our House and Alice Coleman in Utopia on Trial, and of, of the centre from Jane Jacobs in The Death of Life of the Great American Cities and, and elsewhere to throw real discredit on the left. It's also helped lay the basis for the sell-off of council houses to become Thatcher's most popular policy and to be followed un under Blair by a government drive to abolish council housing altogether. Let us consider what Marx meant when he praised capitalist consumerism. The worker becomes co-participant in general wealth up to the limit of his equivalent. A qualitative a qualitative, sorry, a quantitative limit, which of course in turns into a qualitative one, as in every uh, exchange. But he is neither bound to particular objects nor a particular manner of satisfaction. The sphere, of, the sphere of his consumerism is not qualitatively restricted, only quantitatively. This distinguishes him from the slaves and the serfs and so on. This gives workers, quoting, uh, this is all a quote from Becomes Co-Copies, participant. This gives workers as consumers an entirely different importance of the ages of production from which they now possessed. For example, in antiquity of the Middle Ages, or now possesses in Asia. This is page 283, and now continuing on to page 284. Moreover, the semblance of equality in the exchange exists. Nevertheless, as an illusion on his, the worker's part, and to a certain degree on the other side, and thus essentially modifies his relation by the comparison of the workers in other social modes of production. On page 285, capitalists demand that their workers scrimp and save, but this can be done effectively, done, but done by exceptional individual workers. If the working class as a whole were to follow the advice of the bourgeois preachers of thrift, it would lead to brutalisation in the levels of wage where the most animal minimum of needs and subsistence appear to the worker as the sole object and purpose of his exchange of capital. Now for page 287. The works of participation in the higher, even cultural satisfactions, the agitation for his own interests, newspaper subscriptions, attending lectures, educating his, educating his children, developing his tastes, and so on. His only share of civilization which distinguishes him from the slaves is economically only possible by widening the sphere of his pleasures at the times when business is good, where saving is to a certain degree possible. 
Moreover, the capitalist simultaneously encourages other workers, not his own employees, to consume, to spend. In spite of all pious preachers, he therefore searches for means to spur them on to consumption, to give his wares new charms, to inspire them with new needs by constant chatter and so on. It is precisely this side of relation of the capital and labour which is especially which is especially essential civilizing moment, and on which the historic justification but also the contemporary power of capitalist of capital rests. End quote. Marx would have known very well that workers who used all of their discretionary income to read newspapers and books, attend lectures and political or trade union meetings, visit art galleries and solvner in the minority. So even were those who used it for other cultural activities, such as the more varied forms of religious service newly available, or sports. Typical new goods of mass consumption at the time were tea, spirits, opium, sugar, processed foods, and mass entertainment of a sort which the worst effects of modern commercial TV would still find hard to match for their coarseness and degradation. Public executions are still a major form of mass entertainment in England until they were ended as late as 1868. The newer forms of mass entertainment, available in the most prosperous countries, were epitomised by P.T. Barnum. Barnum began his career as a showman in 1835 with the purchase and exhibition of a blind and almost completely paralysed African-American slave woman, Joyce Heff, claimed by Barnum, by Barnum to have been a nurse of George Washington and to be over 160 years old. And then he ran a museum in New York where he made a special hit in 1842 with the exhibition of Charles Stratton the celebrated midget General Tom Thumb, and the Fiji Mermaid. His collection also included the original Siamese tins, Chong and Ong Bunker. After a temporary retirement and a couple of failures, he opened his last enterprise in 1871, P.T. Barnum's Great Travelling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan and Hippodrome, a travelling amalgamation of a circus, menagerie and museum of freaks. Marx knew that capitalism intertwines and is expansion of culture within an inoculation of stupidity, which includes driving us towards trying to satisfy all our needs with ever more private possessions. Private property has made us, quoting, so stupid and one-sided that an object is only ours when we have it, when it exists for us as capital, or when it is directly possessed by us, eaten, drunk, worn, inhabited, and so on. In short, when it is used by us. This is from the 1844 manuscript section on private property and communism. Simultaneously with the civilising influence, inculation of stupidity, simultaneously with inculation of stupidity, capitalism's, that is, that does repeat itself in the article, capitalism creation of the system of artificial needs, in other words, of culture, and with great subversive and creative potential. The emancipation of culture from that stupidity can only come through human activity pushing through and beyond capitalist consumerism not by an attempt to back out of it as an earlier, simpler era. Uh, quoting Marx, Crude communism, how little this annulment of private property is really appropriation, is in fact proved by the abstract negation of the entire world of culture and civilization. The regression of the unnatural simplicity of the poor, and a crude man who has few needs and who has not only failed to go beyond private property, but has yet not even reached it. The community is only a community of labour and a quality of wages paid out by communal capital, by the community as a universe as the universal capitalist. Both sides of the relationship are pray, are raised rather to an imagined universality. Labour is the category in which every person is placed, and capital as the acknowledged universality and power of the community. And that is uh, from the same section previously of the eighteen forty four manuscripts. Part of the answer of the dilemmas around consumerism may lie in discussion of another big issue, education. One of the driving forces behind the pathological features of capitalist consumerism is, after all, a hopeless race to fill the emptiness which Marx identifies as endemic to bourgeois society. Ready to fill that emptiness requires recreation of human solidarity in place of the atomising competitiveness of bourgeois society, and unless that is to be an enterprise and re regression towards Fortifying, horizon-narrowing, conformist communities of all pre-capitalist class societies and a vast expansion of education and culture. In the Grundrisse, Marx writes sweepingly of the general intellect. But who is the general? It is not the bourgeoisie. 
One of the things not manifest in our times within the eminent capitalist move from the top of one company to the top of another with lavish golden hellos and golden farewells, but no one suggesting that they need know anything about the different technologies employed by the different industries is that the capitalist success is essentially measured by the ability to do down workers and other capitalists, not by intellect. The engineer, technologist and so on is, as Marx put it in Capital, a limb of the aggregate worker at the greater distance from the actual manual labour. But also, often from the mass of the workers. If Marx is right about the general intellect becoming greater and greater productive force, then the working class emancipation involves a collective ownership not only of the physical machinery of production, but also of the general intellect. And this is more than just the breaking down of the walls of commercial secrecy, patent, copyright and commercial sponsorship of research which keeps knowledge parcelised today. Exactly what it means to positively is not clear. Sometimes Marx seems to think in terms of future society where everyone will have at least a sound acquaintance with every field of knowledge. That might just have been possible in the mid-19th century for a prodigy of industriousness, curiosity and mental retentiveness such as Engels. Science has expanded too far for it to be possible today. Even in the most able and hardest working person today, faced as Engels was writing articles at speed on random topics for the New American Cyclopedia, would find him or herself utterly catastrophically ignorant on many of the items. But an education for every person sufficient for them to orient themselves in the main areas of social life and science, that might be possible. Indeed, it is necessary for human future... For a fu- if in, in a future human society is going to be able to make decisions it needs to make about regulating its relationships with its natural environment in a really rational, democratic way. We are meant lamentably far from it today. The driver of capital for the fitness of the worker for the maximum number of different kinds of labour has made education into by far the biggest industry, measured by numbers of workers studying, teaching, or ancillary in many capitalist countries. 16 years or so of full-time education, followed by an extensive part-time learning, is not uncommon now, and in sheer quantity of time it should be sufficient to ensure democratic participation in the general intellect. In practice, far from it. The generic inhospitability of capitalist society such as democratic enterprise, as general all-round education, and a demoralisation generated by long-term unemployment or semi-employment, the mental damage of insecurities and inequalities of life under neoliberalism, the shutting down of education by louder voices of commercial TV and other media, and paradoxically, perhaps, the artificial separation of education from productive work carried out by adults, student workers mostly being confined in industries which employ almost exclusively young workers, all combined to make modern education systems tremendously inefficient. A 1996 survey in Britain by the Office of National Statistics found that 39% of males and 52% of females aged between 16 and 24, a high proportion of old people, had a lower level of literacy and numeracy than the minimum level required to cope with modern life and work on OECD reckonings. This was not a matter of reading James Joyce or understanding quantum physics, but of ability to locate and use information in graphs, timetables and charts. The ideologists of capital have few answers to this other than the demand for more testing and a return of traditional methods and tougher command by, by superheads, the left must cease to consider education as a marginal sector of society and to attend chiefly when teachers campaign for higher wages, students protest at higher fees, or schools complain of reduced budgets. We need a more revolutionary programme than higher wages for teachers, zero fees for students, and even bigger budgets for schools. Our work as socialists cannot be just to react against particular capitalist policies or even against capitalism itself as the system of the bourgeois economy has developed for us by degrees, so too its negation of its ultimate result, writes Marx, and expounds its revolutionary negation, which is not merely a negation, but also an ultimate result, as the expansion above all of the cultured, educated, social, human, free time. The saving of labour time is equal to an increase in free time. Quoting, In other words, time for full development of the individual, which in turn reacts back to the produ- upon the productive power of labour as itself is the greatest productive power. From the standpoint of the direct production process, it can be regarded as the production of fixed capital. This fixed capital being a man himself. It goes without saying, by the way, that direct capital, but the, the direct labour time itself cannot remain in the abstract antithesis to free time in which it appears from the perspective of bourgeois economy. Labour cannot become 
Labour cannot play as utopian socialist Fourier would like, although it remains his greatest contribution to have expressed a suppression not of distribution, but the mode of production itself in a higher form and the ultimate object. Free time, which is both idle time and time for higher activity, has naturally transformed its possessor into a different subject, and he then enters in direct production processes as a different subject. The process is then both discipline, as regards to human being and the processes of becoming, and at the same time, practice, there's Alsenbung, experimental science, materially creative and objectifying science. As regards to the human being who has become, in those with in whose head exists the accumulated knowledge of society. That is page 711 to 702. Thanks to Bob Carnegie, Rob, Roger Clark, Mike Fulton, Alan Gardner, Murray Kane, Holly Peters, Patterson, Stella Riefmuller, Ted Riefmuller, and Melissa White for contributions to, dis- to discussions on this. Abridged from Workers' Liberty 316. End article.